Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. KGRA Radio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today our guest is Dr. Mary Helen Hensley. Thank you for being on the show. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, this is an interesting topic. I've really been wanting to do an episode on a near-death experience, or NDE as they call it now. Well, um, I'm, I'm ready to talk. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so, um, so, so let's, tell, let's hear the story. Like, I know you were in a car accident. Um, tell me what happened. Yeah, it was um, December 14th, 1991, and I was living in Charleston, South Carolina, and I was on my way to my work Christmas party, and um, I had just left my apartment, and you know it was Charleston, so it was still hot in December, and I was wearing my bright red Bermuda shorts and my Santa Claus t-shirt and a big jingle bell around my neck, <laughs> and... Um, I got uh, about a mile down the road from my apartment and I was at a traffic light at a major intersection, Highway 17 in Charleston. And I sat at my red light waiting. And then when my light turned green, I had to go across the traffic, several lanes of traffic to be able to make a left going towards town. And all of a sudden um, I looked left and there was a car in the, in the furthest lane that decided it was going to try and blow through that red light. And so they estimated that I got hit at 75 miles an hour and I was T-boned. And um, the next thing I knew was well, actually before it happened and I knew that the car was coming at me, everything just kind of slowed down into to a snail's pace. Right. And I knew in that moment that I was getting ready to die. And oh, what was wow. so interesting about it was that I, I wasn't too bothered. <laughs> you know? you were was, like cool uh, with it. You're like, okay. Yeah, it die. was that it was going everything was going so slow that I suddenly just had this realization that, oh, okay, I'm 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 going to die. And it was an overwhelming feeling of I had done this many times before. And that's what was the first, I guess, the first very unusual thing, because, you know, I grew up in, in the South. I'm a, a preacher's daughter. And, uh, you know, we, it was unusual because that's not how I had been taught things would happen. And I was very aware in that moment that I was very much so in control of what was happening and that I had the option where I could stay in my body and experience the impact or I could leave my body and watch it happen. So I took option B and next thing I knew I was hovering above and looking down at the accident taking place. So I had come out of the body before I'd actually gotten hit, which that was really, really interesting. Um, And I watched my car, um, fold in half and spin through the intersection and come to a halt and all the traffic stopped and I'm watching people, you know, getting out of their cars and starting to congregate. And it was really interesting, Gary, cause it was like a detached interest. Um, oh. yeah. yeah my, my father, um, had a experience where he died for about 10 minutes from a heart attack 
And he said he was floating above his body, watching him, trying to resuscitate him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's so amazing about that part is um, I have found over the years, the best way to describe what that feels like, because people are like, oh my gosh, weren't you trying to get back in your body? And weren't you very upset or scared? Nothing like that. And I liken it to if you're outside and you're working in the garden on a hot day and you're all sticky and sweaty and you've been, you've put in a hard day's work mm-hmm. and then you come inside and you peel off those gross clothes and you throw them down next to the washing machine and you go have this fabulous shower the last thing that you're thinking about when you're in the shower is the dirty clothes next to the washing machine. And it was much the same way with looking at the body. You know, I was there, I recognized that was my body and it had just taken me through 21 years and I had no interest whatsoever of trying to clamor to get back into it. I was just very, very much so present in that moment and watching what was happening below me. That's really, uh, it's interesting and kind of cool in a way. Oh, it was so, it was so cool. <laughs> yeah. like, I know that's like a terrible thing. I think sometimes you get offended like by the, you know, describing death as something kind of cool, but. And listen, it's, you know, what's so interesting about it is that we've made it such a thing. We've made it such a thing to be feared. We've, we, you know, we do everything possible to avoid it. And uh, we prolong the agony around it for some people by keeping them, you know, hooked up to machinery and not letting them go on um, easily. And we put such a, a stigma around death and really it's like walking from one room into another. That's, that's how big it is. You know, it's um, there is this immediate recognition and remembrance of the fact that, oh, hang on a second. Um, That's just a suit I was wearing. That's not me. And it was really a a really cool experience in that moment to go, oh my gosh, that body isn't who I am. It's the vehicle that I have used on my time on earth to traverse the the earthly experience. Um, And that's a, that's a real big aha, especially, you know, these days we're so hard on ourselves and we're such, we talk about other people placing judgment on us, but we're our own worst critics when it comes to our bodies. And, um, you know, it's so interesting how you suddenly realize, oh gosh, that was, that was just a suit, a meat wagon. And who I really am is this essence, this being that is sitting here watching this accident take place. And it's, it's a, a pretty profound experience when you shed that mortal coil and suddenly go, Oh yeah, this is how it is. Oh God, I forgot. So it must change like your perspective on everything. We spend so much time, (laughs) you know, accumulating wealth and trying to protect ourselves and trying to accomplish this and accomplish that. And, and it's, it's like we, we, we live like we're in this life, like we're going to live forever in this life. Mm-hmm. And like we want to leave something behind because we think there's nothing else afterwards or we're, we're afraid of what happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's just so calming. Like, like, we, like all, that, all that stuff that we do here is like, almost like futile. Yeah, exactly. And I tell you what, though, it's for someone who's been through that experience, it, it truly does. It sounds so cliche, but it, it just changes the way you live the rest of your life. Um, the, the, you know, when they say don't sweat the small stuff, it's all small stuff. Well, it, it's, it's not even that it's all small stuff. It's that 
each and every moment is so profound and that we place importance on the things that really aren't the most important things. It's these small things that we do. The, it's our intentions. Um, those, those kind things that we can do and say um, our thoughts because our thoughts really are things. And it changes the way that you open a bill. You know, I open my bills now and I go, I'm, I'm grateful to be paying this light bill because it means I have lights. Mm-hmm. And rather than going, oh my God, how am I going to get the money for this or, um, or whatever you live, uh, very presently and it's, um, it's incredible. And so, you know, I spend my life trying to teach people to, to grasp that feeling without having to actually go through that death experience. And I don't think I had it because I was, I was so special. I think I had it because I obviously needed to recognize that that's how, how it works here on earth. And what um, was your life like prior to that? Were you like one of those people that were sort of neurotic and trying to accomplish stuff? And well, because I was only 21, um, it's it's so interesting, you know, which seems so old back then. And you know, now I look back at 51 and going, My god, I was a baby. Um, what was interesting was that I'd had quite an unusual life leading up to that. Um, when I was born, um, or actually when my mother was pregnant with me, um, I wrote a book. My first book, uh, was called promised. And the reason it was called promised was because when my mom was pregnant with me, she had, um, she'd gone to the doctor and found she'd gotten quite ill and found out that she had the German measles in the first trimester of the pregnancy. And so for any expectant mother, that is like the last thing you want to hear because it, it most definitely means that, um, something's going to be, um, wrong or, or there's going to be major health challenges for the baby if the baby survives it at all. And so my parents had been prepared, um, during my mom's pregnancy that I wasn't going to be okay. If I made it, I, there would be blindness, hearing loss, limb loss, there'd be something not right. Cause remember this is back in 1969 and, yeah. um, before we're doing ultrasounds and this kind of thing. And so basically the doctor said to my parents, you know, you need to get your heads around the idea that this child is, is, is not going to be healthy um, or well or whole in some way. And so what was fascinating was my father, again, the, the Southern Baptist minister, he has this visit during the course of my mother's pregnancy And what was fascinating was the fact that he called them celestial beings. And you would think by being a a, a Christian man that he would have used the term angels, but he Mm -hmm. always said these angels didn't have wings. So he referred to them as celestial beings. And he has this very, very profound moment where they come and they say to him, not only is the baby going to be okay, but she, and remember, they didn't know what, what I was, boy or girl, but that she was going to come in with some unusual abilities. And so from the time I can remember my earliest memories of my father saying to me, you're promised. And what he was always referring to was during those very dark moments when they thought I wasn't going to be okay, that he had had this visit and was told that I was going to be okay. And for him, that meant I was promised. And, um, So sure enough, you know, I'm born and first couple of years, I suppose, were normal enough. And then when I was about three, four, I'm talking all of the time. Um, You know, my very best friend at that stage in the world was my grandfather, 
mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Garland Clark. This was my mother's father, and I absolutely adored him. And he was just so present in my life. And he was, it just, he taught me um, constantly, you know, showing me things. And he was just always around. And so one day I, I get, my parents kind of call me into the kitchen and, and sat me down. I'll never forget it. And my father had this very deep, booming voice. You know, not only was he a, a, a minister, but he was also a football coach, American football coach. And, <laughs> you know, he was just this big presence of a man and he right. had this booming voice and he sat me down and he said, sugar, do you know the difference between what it means to be alive and dead? And, you know, I'm like four and I'm just looking at him and I'm like, um, I, I don't know. And this is when they explained to me that my grandfather judge had died when I was one. And I'm telling them things about these conversations that I'm having with him and all these visits he makes like he was sitting right there in the room. And I'm saying things that at that stage in my life, I couldn't have possibly known about him. And this is what really had captured their attention. And so it was at that stage that they knew, Oh, okay. This celestial visit that my father had is now coming to fruition. And so from that time forward, things started getting interesting because, you know, now I'm, I'm able to talk and I'm having these dreams at night and I'll come in and say to them, um, okay, dad, you know, Mr. Jones is going to die on Tuesday. And, you know, my father's the minister and he does all these eulogies at funerals and all. And it was, you know, it was just such a, a bizarre thing for them because whatever box they were in, this certainly didn't fit inside of it. And yet at the same time, it was happening in front of their eyes and they couldn't deny it. And so, um, you know, I, I grew up having these, um, dreams and knowing things before they would happen. And, um, you know, as I got a little bit older, my father was, I think he was more afraid of maybe people not understanding or exploitation or or something, but it was strongly encouraged that I never share this with anybody that I could talk to them about it, but nobody else, my Mm -hmm. siblings didn't even know. Um, so you can imagine when my first book came out, they were in total shock. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I guess as I was growing up and then you get into those awkward teenage years and the last thing that you want as a teenager is to be completely different than everybody else. And so you kind of clam up, but it all still continues. I'm still having the dreams. I'm still seeing things. Uh, judge, as I called my grandfather was always present. Um, and then I go off to college. And so when I was in college, um, I, I always joke about the fact I was a cheerleader in college and, um, I used to write down the scores to the basketball games and stick them in an envelope and tuck them away in my drawer and we'd go cheer at the game and then everybody come back to our dorm room and, you know, crack open a beer and we'd pull out the envelope and there was a score to the basketball game. And that was the extent of my service to humanity at that stage. Calling basketball games. <laughs> yeah. And um, so when I graduated from college, um, my college sweetheart was from Charleston and you know, we were dating very seriously. And so, um, I moved to Charleston where that was his hometown. And so, you know, with my big fat college degrees, I was mopping floors in a sign company. And, um, this was such a great experience in my life because my first bosses, um, Frank and Teresa, a they, they really 
taught me about life. They really, they put a mop in my hand and they said, if you want to know what it's like to really run a business with integrity, you know, every job. And that means from the bottom up and they stuck a mop in my hand and that was me. And, um, you know, I eventually worked my way up to cleaning up the, the, the sign, the, the vinyl peelings off the floor from where they were making the signs. Mm -hmm. And then eventually into the artwork, which was what my degree was in. It was in graphic design. And then, you know, so December rolls around and it's time for our Christmas party. And so I was dressed and ready to go and on my way. And then boom. Um, I literally hit, I'm at the crossroads of this intersection and I'm at the crossroads of my, my young life at that stage. And so I guess the powers that be decided that it was, uh, it was time for me to start using what I had. And, you know, I, I, I graduated from college. My degrees were in communications and graphic design. I'd done some TV work and, you know, was now in work, working in the sign company, but I wasn't utilizing in any way that was helpful to humanity, these kind of extraordinary things I could do. And, you know, I, I later found out that it, it wasn't in fact the powers that be that decided that, that it was me that I had set up for myself, that if I had made it to adulthood. And so I'd set the, the, the age of 21, um, that if I hadn't managed to find my way back to these gifts and to be able to utilize them in the way that I had intended that I would have to have a, a great intervention and thus the car accident. Wow. So, so once you're, you have the car accident and you're looking down on yourself and everything's calm and peaceful, what happened next? Well, what was really cool at this stage, and this has been a, a major part in, in my life's work was at the time that I'm immediately out of the body and looking down and everything speeds up below me and I see the car smash into mine. And so I'm, I'm watching myself die, which was so interesting. Um, but there was this sound and I always liken the sound to um, the fact that I live here in Ireland at the moment and, you know, I've lived here for 20, over 20 years and I love traditional Irish music and I play um, the Bowron, which is the, the round drum that you might mm -hmm. see in a typical Irish session. But my favorite instrument is the Ilian pipes. Ilian means elbow in Irish and the Ilian pipes are like a, a rather than a big bag pipes where you blow in and fill a bag full of air the bag is under the arm and it's pumped with the elbow uh -huh. and it makes this incredible low drone. So for me, that sound always means when I hear that drone, you're getting ready to have a great session and it's just this great feeling. And so there was this sound and it was this low kind of drone, which I have now many years later come to discover that that sound was kind of what was keeping me, my essence, my spirit tethered, to the body. And so as the accident unfolds and, you know, I watch, um, my head go through the window, I broke my neck. Um, and you know, I see, uh, a policeman come up and reach through the, the windows are blown out of the car, reaching through the passenger side and turning the car off. And uh, there was a lady who came and put her phone number on the front seat of the car, uh, which was really strange and then left. Um, as if she was you know, a witness to the accident, but she couldn't yeah. stay for some reason. And I'm watching all of this happen. And as I'm watching that, that sound from that low drone begins to change. 
the pitch, the frequency, the tone of it begins to speed up. And as it speeds up, I literally just disappear from that same. And so this is kind of where people talk about the, the tunnel of light. And uh-huh. what's so funny is, you know, I think the tunnel itself is the illusion and, and, and the light is the reality. And so, you know, in one second, I'm there hovering over looking at this accident. And then this music changes, this music of the spheres, it, this frequency begins to elevate. And it's the most beautiful sound you could ever imagine. And they're just these, oh, it's like a symphony. And, um, so, I now am in another space. Uh-huh. And so and it what's, was that What's the uh, tunnel like? Is it, is it just there, well, I light? Missed it. Or is it I, li- I missed colors? it because, yeah, it, I was there one minute and, you know, I've heard other people talking about going through the tunnel, but for me, it was so fast. I was watching the accident one second and then the next second, I'm in this other space. Huh. And it was incredible because it was a space. I completely knew who I was. I knew who I'd just been. I knew what mm-hmm. had just happened. But all of a sudden, I'm, I'm looking around and I'm so fully present that I, it's like I'm beginning to remember everything. And it's like that was when the veil lifted. And I'm, I'm going just, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. And the atmosphere of the, the space that I was in, it was palpable. It was like I could touch it. But it was also like I was part of it. And... Um, I don't, I couldn't even tell you how long I sat in that space and just absorbed the magnificence of it. And it was at that stage that that atmosphere, that palpable atmosphere began to take shape in front of me and two beings just formed out of thin air and were there in front of me. And I was looking at them and they, they said nothing and they were just patiently waiting. And I knew in that moment that I should know who they were, but I don't know if I was stunned or, you know, I'm so new to the space. I I couldn't put my finger on who they were, but I knew they were somehow extremely important to my story. And they just waited. And then all of a sudden the penny dropped and I was like, oh my gosh, these are my guardians. Oh my God, these are my guardians. You know, we have actual guardians beings who were there assisting us. And it was, it was like the homecoming of all homecomings. (laughs) And, um, as soon as I recognized them, they just enveloped me and that's the best way to describe it. And they enveloped, enveloped me and I became suddenly really smart. Everything that I had forgotten about how it all works and, and why we, why we even come here in the first place, why we take on a body, it just, boom, it was there in a, in a split second. And I remembered it all. And at that stage, I then did um, a life review. And um, again, it's, it all sounds so cliche because we've heard these terms so many times, but it was just absolutely extraordinary because I'm there, this, this me, this essence of, of who I really am. I'm there. They are there with me, just like wrapping me in this indescribable love. And next thing I'm looking and it's like, there's a 360 degree cinema around me. And this was so important because I'm watching my life unfold, but not in chronological order. I'm watching me as a three-year-old. I'm watching me as a 17-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 19-year-old, all at the same time. 
And that this is when the concept of, of time and the constructs that we've created for ourselves to be able to, to be able to walk through the earth plane suddenly made so much sense. And I'm like, this is all happening simultaneously. I'm all of these things at the same time. And wow. this really magnified and, and explained how, you know, we, we often hear, you know, that the source or God or whatever you want to want to call that uh-huh. is in all places at, at all times. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's how it works. Um, and so I'm watching myself go through these 21 years simultaneously. And, you know, this for, for the preacher's kid, this is where I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is where the judgment's happening. Somebody else is watching this with me and judging, am I good enough to carry on? I get to walk through the pearly gates or I'm getting ready to go burn for all eternity. <laughs> And what's so interesting is, you know, you know, the life that you've just lived, you know, all of your, your high points and your low points, and you're kind of watching this, looking around and cringing, going, Ooh, I remember what happened there. But you're also watching these tiny things, these tiny moments where something that you, you might've thought was just so small made such a huge impact in the life of another person. And you're watching yourself and you, you're critiquing this performance and looking around going, hang on a second, you know, where's the guy with the big white beard and the, and the robe who's, who's judging me and, you know, making the decision of, of what happens to me next. And it's, it's just not happening. So everything that I had experienced through those 21 years, all of the things that I'd been taught to believe simply weren't happening. You know, it was, Jesus didn't meet me or, you know, there was no, uh, no dead relatives hanging around waiting for me or anything. It was me in this absolute perfection of this plan I had created for myself. And, you know, I've had many people challenge, you know, at this point going, well, so you don't believe in there's a higher being or are you saying you're God? And I'm like, no, I'm saying that we're all fractals of the same whole. Right. And, you realize in that moment that every single thing that happens to you while you are in a physical form is of your own creation. And that's huge because for me coming back into this body, it has changed everything. Hmm. That's pretty heavy. (laughs) It's pretty awesome. Do you know? Like, I, don't, um, I don't know how I would feel like looking at my whole life like that, you know, I'd be like, I, would think, what, I think I would, I think I would cringe. Yeah, no, you know what? It's you're watching yourself grow all at the same time. And you're, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing times in your life where you were uninformed or ignorant about something and, and making judgments about life around you at the same time that you've grown or outgrown these concepts or ideas and, and learned compassion, or you've learned an understanding about something that 10 years earlier you didn't know. And it's all happening simultaneously. And so, you know, you, you suddenly, you lose the capacity to judge yourself as anything but experiential. And it's really hard to get mad at yourself, even for the really stupid stuff that you did when you accept and understand that you are this divine, omnipotent, perfect, eternal soul who took on that human form in order to have those experiences in order to feel 
what it felt like not to be perfect because perfection is what we come from. And it's just absolutely incredible. And so people will often go, why on earth, especially when they're, when things aren't going so well, do you know, right. why would I choose to do this to myself? I ask, you that, like, I ask myself that question all the time. Yep. But ask any adrenaline junkie, you know, why do they strap a cord to their ankle and jump off a cliff with a bungee cord? Or why, you know, why do they skydive? Or why do they do anything that, that creates that rush? <laughs> and um, so I've kind of whittled it down to this explanation, which, you know, people seem to be able to get their heads around. And I think it's a pretty good one. So imagine, you know, a whole bunch of us have just spent a lot of time in lockdown. And, um, you know, this idea of not being able to go out or do anything. And so a lot of people were improving their home entertainment systems. And, you know, so imagine you've got this, this TV and this surround sound and um, your favorite movie is coming on and you've got the big remote control and um, you're in the comfort of your own home. You're wearing your jammies and the fridge is stocked and you can pause that movie whenever you want to, or if you've got to go to the bathroom, you can go and come back and pick up where you left off. And it's just perfect. And now imagine lockdown is over and your best friend calls you and goes, guess what? Cinema just opened and, and guess who's out. Um, and you're like, Oh yeah. And how about meet me there? And you're like, yeah, yeah. And you get to get dressed and you're out of your pajamas for the first time in four months. And, um, you know, you're looking forward to seeing your friend and to, to go in and actually sit inside of a theater and you open the doors and that smell of buttery popcorn hits you in the face. And, and you go in and you're sitting with an audience of people and you're laughing at what's, you know, the comedy or you're crying at the, the things that are tugging on your heart and you're, you're feeling. And then afterwards you get to go out and, you know, sit down and chat about the movie or, or whatever. And, you know, that's when I go, which of the two experiences is the better one? The one where you're in the comfort of your own home and control of the movie and eating the food out of your fridge and sitting in your comfy jammies or the one where you've gone out and you've met your friend after being locked in for, for months on end, which one of those is better? Oh, going out. Neither. Because they're just two different experiences. For the introvert, lockdown has been bliss. Wow. For the extrovert, they go out and they're having a ball at that movie. They're just two different ways to experience the world around you. Uh-huh. And so when someone asks, why would I leave a feeling of bliss or perfection or omnipotence or, or being eternal to come into a world that is so painful because the way this, this earth plane is set up, which is so unique to this space is that we have this incredible dichotomy available to us where we can simultaneously experience utter bliss and joy and absolute horror and hardship and pain all at the same time. And so to a soul who knows that nothing can harm who it really is, throwing on a body for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 80, 90 years is, is a privilege. And so when you know this and when you come back with this, it changes the way you do everything. Like I said, I open my bills differently. I pull the clothes out of the dryer with such purpose 
noticing every little thing, the way the texture of the clothes feels, the warmth of the clothes, um, the privilege of having the clothes, um, going up and then folding the clothes, putting them away. Everything I do is with, with such purpose now. And I really cherish every single moment because every single moment counts because it's all about the intention. It becomes a chore or it becomes an act of gratitude. How about the, the painful things in life? Like say you wake up in the morning and, and your back hurts and your coffee pot's mm -hmm. broken and you yeah, can't well, find you can the remote to your TV. Totally. I get it. But, you know, you can imagine after, you know, I'm 21 years old and I was perfectly healthy up to that point. And then, you know, now I've, I've broken my neck. Uh -huh. um, I smashed my pelvis. I've been told I'll never have children. You know, you're going through an awful lot when you come back into that body. And so, you know, there's not been a day in the last 30 years where I didn't have some form of physical pain. And what's interesting though, is that I wake up every day and I ask myself, is the pain that I'm in right now bigger than what I want to do today? And 99.9% .9 of the time, it's not. I recognize that I'm not this body. I'm not these pains. And while some days, some things might be easier for me than other days, mm -hmm. there's never really a day where I'm not going to get up and do what I want to do, what I want to accomplish. Because I know that it's, you know, I have a short period of time to be here and I want to get as much done and have as many experiences packed in so that, you know, when I do die again, that I'm flying out by the seat of my pants with a glass of champagne and chocolate dipped strawberries and, you know, going, woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so what is the, that you think you're, you are, even all of us, are, are, is every, well, actually, here's a question. Are we all here to accomplish the same thing? Or do we all have individual things to accomplish? And how do we figure that out? Well, what's so interesting is, like I said before, we're fractals of the same whole. And part of the trick of being here and one of the great, um, you know, when we're always working towards this enlightened state or this self-actualization and, you know, what's so funny about that is that, you know, we actually think we're humans who are trying to have a more spiritual experience as opposed to spiritual beings who are here for that human experience that when you have something like an NDE and you get that great big aha, you come back and you realize that, Every single person who crosses your path, every single experience that you have, you're having through the unique vision of your two eyes, you're having through the unique experience of, of your way of perceiving the world around you. And that if you can look at the person across from you as the fractal of that same whole, you realize that we're, we really are one. And you know, it sounds like, well, that's great. I'd like to be the one who's living in the mansion and has the, you know, the endless bank account at my, mm -hmm. you know, at my disposal, <laughs> um, you know, instead of having to struggle. But all, all it is, is, you know, all of these 8 billion plus people who are on this planet are literally projections of that same whole having different experiences. And every time we cross another individual's path, we have a choice. We can turn a blind eye. We can choose to see the world through their eyes. 
we can judge their experiences and thinking that we can do them so much better. We can be envious of them. We can be joyful for them. Each and every moment presents that choice. And it really changes the way because it takes and you can't be a victim when you see the world this way. You just can't. Everything that has happened to me. Um, like I said, when I was doing that life review, I'm looking at myself, you know, winning living history day in seventh grade dressed as PT Barnum at the same time that I'm seeing myself, um, on a night when I went to visit a college at, at 17, almost 18 and, uh, or maybe I just turned 18 and, um, I'd had too much to drink. I'd never had drinks before and I had too much to drink and I was raped. And I look at that and I'm looking at those experiences going, they're simply experiences because when you know that no one or no thing can harm who you really are, you realize that things can be done to the body. The body can be hurt. The emotional body can be hurt. It can hold trauma. And you see the opportunity to see those things as experiences through your eyes and experiences through others eyes and it's really hard to be a victim of those things you look back and you go i wouldn't change that for anything it's part of the very foundation of who i am and you know if i got if i started going back and picking and choosing all the really good things that happened to me i would have missed out on all of the growth that has taken place in my life because the growth came through the hardship Yeah, I, I can see that, but I'm still not a fan of hardship. Well, who is? I mean, you know, like, it's not <laughs> like I'm going out looking for bad things to happen. But when you have this approach and this attitude, you know, you see everything as an opportunity. It's an opportunity. I have the chance to show up for myself. I have the chance to uh, set up camp and, and, you know, pitch a tent and, Say, you know, light the campfire of my despair. I can, I can feel the experience, see what it has to offer and then move on. Mm -hmm. I can use that experience to assist another through their own hardship. Um, you know, for me, like if none of these things had happened, I wouldn't have 10 books written. You know? <laughs> um, it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to disconnect from the pain of an experience and see the opportunity and the growth and the expansion that took place to the experience in order to assist my fellow man. That's what, that's what it means to be a steward of humanity. Are, are we all stewards of humanity or is it just uh, certain people that have like profound no. experiences and sort of wake up to it? we all have that opportunity and we literally have it every day. When we wake up, we can start all over again. Um, some of us recognize that more readily than others. Um, some people, you know, are so deeply ensconced in their pain that they can't see that um, because all they can see or feel is pain and mm -hmm. hardship. And um, you know, that they, they think they've been dealt a bad hand or they think, you know, and these ty types of people tend to think outside of themselves. It's not um, as above, so below, as within, so without. It's always coming from the external. Something, somebody is doing something to me. Something is doing something to me. I am the victim of somebody's choices or actions. Right, so there's a lot of blame. There's a lot of blame, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and that's a really, really 
tough way to go through life. For some people, it's absolutely necessary. It's what they came here for. For others, they came here to go through those experiences and then to grow out of them. So um, for me, it was, you know, by this happening at such an early stage in my life, I've been very blessed and fortunate that I've gotten to live more of my life in this understanding than I didn't. And, you know, that's something I'm very, very grateful for. It changes the way, you know, I'm a mother of, of two teenage girls. It changes the way I've parented. Um, it changes the way that I've taught my children to deal um, with the challenges that they inevitably are going to have in their lives. Um, it changes the fact that I don't go and try and sugarcoat or pad everything and prevent them from having difficult things happening. You know, I'm always going to try to be there to, to create a safe space for them. But I know through having lived that life isn't always safe. Um, and it's, it's not always pleasant. And the best gift that I can give to the children is are tools to deal with that as opposed to trying to take it away from them or not, not ever let them have, you know, have the experiences. Right. So, so I don't know, maybe I, let me tell me if I have this right. So, so life is sort of supposed to be hard so we can get wherever it is we're experience, whatever it is we we've chosen to experience. And um, also, at the same time, there's nothing to really fear because eventually we just sort of die and go right back to that sort of safe place. Exactly. And we have the opportunity to come here as many times as we want to and, and trust and believe. If you think Earth is the only place that's here, <laughs> think again. There are multi dimensions and multiple experiences. And, you know, we can experience this plane. Um, through different dimensions as well. Um, you know, there is just so much more out there than we have allowed ourselves to, to believe or to experience. And, um, you know, that's part of being here. Um, you know, if, if we all knew all of that, there'd be no point of being here. Um, the fun part of it is, is that once you've kind of been, you know, tag, you're it, guess what? You get to remember all this. I had a choice. And the choice was mine. I was not forced to come back here. I wanted to come back here. You know, once a cheerleader, always a cheerleader. I'm a cheerleader <laughs> by nature. And I wanted to come back and have the experiences of helping other people discover their own power. Discuss, you know, I didn't want to come here and, and be the one who, you know, yeah, okay, I can see things before they happen. And I'm, a, you know, I can talk to, to those who are in spirit. And, you know, I've used aspects of that gift all through my life. But the more you grow and the more you mature and the more you step outside of your ego, you begin to realize that the, the big payoff, the great joy is when you empower somebody else to know that all of this is available to them at all times. If they just get out of their own way, get out of their own pain and start focusing on those around them. You know, it's really, really hard to feel sorry for yourself all the time when you are spending your time creating joy or creating positivity or assisting someone who's going through something really challenging or difficult. It's really hard to, to feel sorry for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's always better. I, I, I've always found the best way to get out of myself is to help somebody else. 
So just magnify that, you know, on a, on a global scale. And I mean, like we're seeing, there are people right now, you can know there's two camps seeing people are terrified right now and they don't know what's happening. The world changed on a dime overnight. And then there are some people who are having, like I have had the best 2020 that you could imagine. And I don't say that to throw that in the face of people who've had a very difficult time. Uh I say that because, you know, I had the same opportunity to make choices and to do things in 2020 that everybody else did. And I chose to do some pretty magnificent things. And, um, you know, I, I had COVID in March and I was quite ill. And so what I did was I recognized that there were a whole lot of people out there who didn't know what in the hell was going on. They were terrified. Mm. And so I decided through my sickness, you know, when I was able, um, I'd go on Facebook live and I'd start telling, okay, here's what I look like today, folks. I'm still here. Um, you know, I'm sick as a dog, but having the time of my life and, um, here's what it looks like. And, um, here's what it looked like when I had to get at my test and here's, you know, anything that I could do to help make it an easier experience for other people that if they stopped for a minute, took a breath and went, hang on a second. Let me just back off of the media for a second and stop filling myself full of all these statistics and these numbers and, um, you know, the things that are getting great ratings. And let me just have a look around me and see what's, what's real. And, um, I chose to use the illness for that. And I think it really helped an awful lot of people because when they saw me and they saw me sick, um, they also saw me trying different things and having different realizations about what was actually going on and going, God almighty, this is really about alkalinity and acidity. Those of us who are getting this, who are in an alkaline state when we get it are faring better than those who are in an acidic state when they're getting it. Um, and, you know, a great big focus on the idea that we love a horror story. And so, you know, we just love to scare ourselves to death by saying, oh, you know, Nurse Jones was perfectly healthy and working in the hospital and she died of COVID. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I, I challenge that. I say that's not true because we spend so much time talking about mental health and our emotional states and how important they are to our well being. And then all of a sudden, you know, this virus comes along and all that goes out the window. I don't think so. But nurse Jones might have not had any kind of physical ailment, but you know, was she going through a divorce? Was she swamped with debt? Was one of her kids um, uh, physically challenged? Did her mom just die? And so we're so quick to place a judgment on something that we actually know nothing about. And so it was really important to me to let people know and remind them on a daily basis, look at the whole picture here, guys, this idea that people are dropping dead who were perfectly healthy, a takes, takes away the idea that, you know, that we're here for a purpose and a reason. And, um, you know, we don't just, spontaneously die of, of, you know, something that got us, you know, something that came along and got us and that Mm -hmm. we had no control over that, that that wasn't part of our own overall plan, our own divine plan. You know, I firmly believe and I practice every single day that I am here until I finish what I came here to do. How does somebody know when they're finished or you just know? Oftentimes they consciously don't know on a soul level. They know, um, 
you know, in that moment when I left my apartment, when I was driving towards that accident, I didn't know I was getting ready to die. Um, the second it happened, I knew well, the second everything started slowing down, I knew. Um, and so what's funny is it changes our whole perception about the way things happen when we die, you know, well, oh, well, what about the guy who got shot? You know, boom, gunshot, bang. He's, he's murdered on the spot. Uh-huh. Everything time ceases to exist when you're making that transition. And so everything slows down and there are those who have had family members or, you know, maybe have experienced themselves these horrific things. And they're like, Oh my gosh, that, you know, they died so tragically and it was so painful. Well, you know, sometimes that is an illusion. And so when I'm saying to you that my body is spinning through this intersection, my neck has just got broken as it went through the driver's side window. I wasn't even in my body to feel that happen. And so I'm saying to people who have lost somebody tragically or, you know, maybe lost a baby um, and going, oh my gosh, you know, nothing could be worse than, than losing a small child. I'm saying that every soul comes in with a purpose. And what we have done, which is very unfortunate, is that we have, have qualified life by its quantity. And we have put that if we don't make it to a ripe old age, then in some way we got cheated or our lives weren't as significant as they could be. Well, you know, ask anybody out there who practices the Christian faith, you know, they, they, most of them will agree that Jesus um, was 33 and, you know, I, you know, I'd beg to ask any Christian, you know, do you think his life had purpose in, in, in the way that you practice your faith, you know? And there are other people out there who um, have had people who have made a profound impact, a child who was there for only a few years that absolutely irrevocably changed the lives of the people who knew that child. And so what's because the child didn't make it to adulthood, their life didn't count or it didn't matter. It was insignificant in some way. And so we've placed these bizarre parameters on what it means to be significant Right. So, so is, is not the amount of time that we spend here that's important? Absolutely not. But, but, but even in a short amount of time, we can do a lot. Oh, my gosh, can and we? And impact a lot of other people's lives. Absolutely. Is it, is it possible for, like, say, a person to come here, you think, and live a pretty much like, say, like a 90% life that, that's bad and evil, and then like 10% of their life is good? And that 10% is the most important part. Well, it's funny because, Gary, it really doesn't boil down to percentages so mm-hmm. much. Um, I tell of a story in um, the last book that I wrote, which is called Understanding is the New Healing. And I talk about a story um, about a young girl. She was 12, and she she goes into secondary school over here in Ireland. And she got a really, really hard time. She was bullied so badly that it came down to um, she ended up attempting to take her own life. And what was interesting was when the reports were made to the school that she was being so badly bullied, the principal of the school, rather than supporting the child, didn't want this whole, there's no bullying on my watch. There's no bullying in my school. And so rather than supporting the child, started pointing the finger at the child 
as an attention seeker and actually ended up taking the child and publicly shaming her in front of her peers because she didn't, the principal didn't actually want to deal with the bullying issue and wanted to make it look like it was a, a singular case of a child who was emotionally disturbed, who wanted to cause problems. And so what was fascinating that after, after that child made the attempt on her life and it was unsuccessful and um, she began to learn and grow and understand what was actually happening. What was fascinating was that I knew people who knew this principal and she was a mother. She was a friend. She was a wife and they thought that she was a magnificent person. And so while she was this loving and caring wife and mother in one aspect of her life, she was also the reason that this child had no support and ultimately went on to try and take her own life. These things were happening at the same time. It wasn't about a percentage of being good or bad. It was a percentage of good and bad simultaneously. And so what I ask is on which merit do we judge the principal? Because if you ask her children, she's a fantastic person. If you ask her husband, she was a wonderful woman. If you ask the mother of that child, she was evil incarnate. And so what's so interesting about this is that we have the capacity to be all of these things at the same time. That's what it means to be human. This is that dichotomy of dark and light. And it's precious and it's rare. And that's why the earth plane is such an incredible space to be in. Wow. And um, like, I, I know like it seems like, like one of your missions is to, um, to heal people. Is that correct? Um, no, I'd say one of my missions is to empower people to understand that they can heal themselves. Okay. So, um, yeah, early on, you know, when, you know, I, I wake up from this accident and, you know, I'm going through my own rehabilitation process and I'm learning to swallow again and, you know, and to engage with life. I was, you know, I had, I went on and got married and, you know, during that marriage I had breast cancer and you had all of these things happening, but I've also had this profound life-changing experience. And, um, you know, early on when you're still young and getting accustomed to the fact that you've, you've kind of come back with this knowing, and not only did you come back with this knowing, you come back with this strange ability to touch another individual and manipulate energy, frequency, and light and elicit some kind of physical change. So suddenly someone is coming in with cancer and you have this ability to touch them and this cancer moves on. And, you know, in the early days, how cool was that, you know? Um, and so, yeah, you're like, oh, you know, I'm healing this person. And uh, then you grow and you mature into the idea, hold on, I'm not healing anybody. What I'm doing is I'm using these abilities that I have to go in and wipe the windows clean. So all of a sudden you're busted down from this fantastic healer and prophet to someone who's a window cleaner. You're wiping the windows clean so that other people can see out for themselves, empowering themselves to know that they have the ability to do this too. And that's what being a healer means to me. So it's something that we all can do. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's like some people, 
everybody has the capacity to sing. Some people do it really well and some people do it very poorly. <laughs> and some people choose to make that a profession and other people wouldn't dream of it. We all have the ability to do it. And so for me, you know, I come back in with these, these healing abilities. And what I did was I started practicing and doing it every single day and I got really good at it. And so it became my focus because that was the direction my life was taking. Um, you know, so yes, while I'd say everybody has that within them, it's not everybody's purpose to come here to, to do that. Right. It just happened to be my purpose to come here and do that. And, you know, many other people I know as well. Um, you know, so there are, are those who come who are doing other great things in life who have these challenges or they, you know, they hit a speed bump in life. And, you know, again, my job is to go and just wipe the windows clean and send them on their way or to help them die. Well, imagine that one of my greatest things, you know, working in metaphysics and as, as, as a facilitator of healing is to help people through the process of when it comes time to die, because guess what folks, we're all going to do it. And we can die with peace in our hearts, with integrity. We can learn everything that we thought we were going to come here and learn in those last moments. While you still have breath in your body, you have the capacity to keep putting tools in the toolbox until you take off. And so my job, you know, not only is to help people extend their lives in some way if that's what works for them in their story and on their path my job is also to help people to to go through a process and to die with great intention and purpose and to know that it's just as beautiful and just as miraculous as the way we celebrate when a baby is born wow you just said like like so much stuff <laughs> in a short uh period of time like so there's a whole bunch of things that, that, that you touched on that I want to ask about. One is um, how important is intention when it comes to healing? I think it's everything. That's what it I thought. It's everything. Because believe it or not, one of the things I found out early on, um, you know, when you, you know, you're like, okay, I want to help everybody. I can get my hands on. I'm going to do it. And I was so excited. And I suddenly realized one day that, everybody didn't want to get better. And at first I had a real problem with that. How could you not want to get better? You got cancer. What do you mean? You don't want to get better. Of course they say they want to get better. And then suddenly I began to realize, and this is what maturity brings to the table. I'm going, man, they're actually getting a lot out of being sick right now. You know, I tell a story and understanding is the new healing about um, a lady who came to me with breast cancer and her, you know, I don't know if they think her sister-in-law had talked her into coming to see me and she was stage four and she was, um, you know, weak and tired and, and just in an awful space. And, you know, again, one of those things of being able to touch somebody and kind of download their hard drive, you know, I'm not looking into all their personal details, like their bank statements or what color, color underwear they're wearing. I'm looking at what's relevant where I can assist them in that moment. And this lady comes in and, you know, she's like, I don't know what you think you can do for me in an hour, but you know, my sister-in-law wanted me to come and, and I'm like, all right, well, let's see what we can do. And so I'm like, well, tell me about this. You know, um, when did you get, uh, when did you get this cancer? And she's like two years ago. 
And I said, and it's two and a half years ago that you found out your husband was cheating, right? And she just went, what? How do you know that? And I'm like, well, that's, that's what you're here for, do you know? She goes, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you know, God, talk to me about this. That must have been absolutely horrendous. You're sitting here, you're battling cancer, and your husband's cheating on you? You know, my God, what is that like? You know, you've already got kids, and, you know, you're, how are you doing this? You're exhausted, and you're going through your treatment, and you're doing this. She's like, oh, no, 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 no. As soon as I got cancer, that all changed. And I'm kind of sitting there with this little grin on my face. And she's like, no, he's as good as gold. He does everything. He takes the kids to school and he, 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 and she stops and she's like, oh my God, are you actually suggesting that I got cancer? I gave myself cancer and I'm just nodding and smiling and I'm watching her own light bulb go on because I asked her, had she ever confronted him about it? And she hadn't. And she said, I was terrified of what his answer would be, that he would leave us, that he would leave me and the kids. And, and I never dealt with it. And I said, so the easiest way for you to deal with something that you just couldn't deal with was you created something in your body that caused the focal point and attention to have to come to you. And his attention had to go from his extramarital affairs to you. And she was like, Oh my God. Yes. It's exactly what happened. I said, so am I, am I so crazy now when I'm saying that cancer actually served a purpose in your life? And she was like, I don't believe this. And I'm like, believe it sunshine. And she said, do I have that kind of power? And I said, absolutely. And when she got her head around this and when she realized the changes that cancer had made in her life, I saw her not a month later out in town in the shopping center and she comes running up to me and she was so excited and she goes, guess what? Guess what? And I already knew what was coming. And she was like, there's nothing. They can't find anything. And she had healed herself. She had owned understood and admitted that she had brought a disease process into her life in order to change her circumstances. And once she realized that she had the power to do that, she also realized that she had the power to undo it. So did I heal that cancer? No, she did. All I did was wipe the window clean so she could do it. It's incredible. It is incredible. It is. It's incredible. <laughs> wow. And the other thing that you had said prior too, that, that, that really touched me is the importance of dying because that's something that, that, that we're, we're taught to be afraid of and to avoid. And I, I've been with um, three people as they passed away mm -hmm. and it's such an it, honor. It, it, it was none of those. Well, it was, I was glad to be there, you know. Yeah, it's such an honor. I mean, um, for, to be invited to someone's transition, I mean, wow, you know, it's, it is such an honor. And um, in 2018, um, there's an author, a best-selling author here in Ireland, um, Patricia Scanlon. She's written 21 bestsellers, and 
Um, she happens to be my best friend and she got this great idea and, um, myself and Trisha and, um, an angel healer called Aiden story and a spiritualist, um, our friend Pam, um, we wrote a book together called bringing death to life. And Trisha had just lost her father. And so she had a lot of questions and she'd ha also had some incredible experiences that simultaneously took place during the grief of losing her father. These signs, these, these, these knowings, these things that happened that were just so extraordinary that she couldn't ignore them. And so what she did was she wrote this book where we talked about different topics. And I mean, everything from losing a pet to um, preparing a will to um, extraordinary signs that we get from deceased loved ones to seeing the, the, the inevitable changes that will happen to a person as they're preparing to transition. I mean, we went through A to Z and um, we wrote that book because it's something people really want to know about. And, you know, it was funny because our publishers, when they heard the idea at first and they were like, eh, a book about death, hmm, <laughs> you know, not so sure about that. It went to number one the day it came out, you know, um, we were number one that first week and it was something that people were ready to talk about. And what I absolutely love, you know, and I'm, I'm born American, I, you know, I love my country, but I've, I've been Irish for the last 21 years as well. And one of the things that I absolutely love about this country is the way that death is dealt with. You just don't see at the same level that you do in, in other countries where, you know, someone's alone or hooked up to machinery or dying alone in the nursing home there. Death is very much so a participation game over here and families are part of it. And I love the idea of they still wake people. There's a three day celebration around someone's mm -hmm. passing. And the fact that, it's so normalized, you know, they'll, they'll still, most people will bring their loved one home and the coffin is sitting in the parlor or the, or the sitting room and people are coming in and out and drinking tea and having sandwiches and, you know, grandkid will run in and, and touch grandma's hand in the coffin and then run off and grab a sandwich. And, and it's such a normal part of the process. And I think that that is absolutely an extraordinary way to live. It, it it does sound, and I think it's definitely better than uh, shying away from it and avoiding it completely. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, um, in in some traditions, like uh, like particularly like like some of the Hindu and Buddhist traditions, mm -hmm. they consider like um, when you die, like if you die a. Um, a good death, basically, like like one that's peaceful, and you have people around you that love you, and, and you transition easily. That the next life would be better, rather than if you die like getting in a war, and then your next life would be more traumatic. You think there's anything to that? Well, it's funny because in that book, "Bringing Death to Life," um, my task was to write the chapter, um, I mean, we wrote multiple chapters each, but one of the chapters that I did was about how different um, um, religions and spiritual views viewed death. And the one common denominator throughout them all was that each one of them believed that we continue on after the physical body dies. 
And what's so interesting about that is it's a very human construct to believe in this kind of um, idea that karma is in some way, um, well, you know, we love saying that, you know, karma's a bitch and, you know, somebody does something bad to us, karma's going to get them, you know, mm-hmm. and we make karma a, almost like a punishment type thing um, or, or a reward type system. And karma is just a series of lessons. And what's so funny is that when we realize that it is we who are choosing the lessons that we want to learn, it's not like we're punishing ourselves. But what we're doing is we're going in and trying to see them from every possible angle. So I could have, you know, you could have a homeless man and there could be the person who walks past the homeless man who turns their head away and doesn't even make eye contact. Or there's the person who walks by and says something nasty or cruel. Or there's the person who walks by, looks at them, drops some money in the cup and then carries on. Or there's the person who's dedicated their entire lives to making sure that these homeless people have a safe place to go or that they get food or clean water every day. And what's interesting is that a soul could be each and every one of those. So when I see someone homeless on the street, I am looking at a piece of me and how I choose to interact with them is saying a lot because I'm acknowledging in that moment that that has been me or will be me at some stage. And so when we judge someone else's behaviors, good, bad, or indifferent, what's so interesting is what we fail to realize is that at some stage, we've probably already been that person or we're going to be that person, or we're mm. going to have that in order. We're to going have to have that experience eventually. Exactly. If we haven't already. Exactly. You know, Michelle Obama said, you know, once um, when she was talking about how she and her husband dealt with, you know, when people threw criticism, you know, when they go low, we go high. And I took it a step further going, the reason that when they low go, that go low, that we can go high is because we've been low before. So if we have evolved to the capacity to see taking the high road, it means that we have a baseline understanding of what it feels like to take the low road. That definitely makes sense. Changes the whole way you live, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I had another guest on my show and um, he mentioned like, life after death as two tunnels. He says he had an experience where he, he had died for a short period of time. And he said it was like two tunnels. There was a, a, bright, a white tunnel and a blue tunnel. And he said the white tunnel was like a birth canal. If you took that way, you just sort of jumped into another body. And if you went to the blue tunnel, it was something else. And I don't discount that for a second because I believe uh-huh. everybody has, I've heard so many different stories and I've heard stories with so many similarities. And then I've heard people who've had completely different experiences. Like one of my dearest friends, Peter Bedard, um, fascinating guy, he wrote a book called Convergence Healing. And we do a lot of speaking together because we both had near death, death experiences that in and of themselves, as far as the actual accident were quite similar. But what makes us so different is that I couldn't wait to get back in order to share all the news. And he was furious at coming back. Absolutely furious. Knowing that he chose to do it, he got back and he went into this deep, dark depression. 
And, you know, in his book, he talks about all of the steps that he, he learned along the way and, and now teaches other people about how to get himself out of that space. And, you know, it was so interesting is that, you know, I hear so many reports and um, there's a brilliant near-death um, uh, researcher, PMH Atwater, and she's just written volumes and volumes on the subject. She's, uh, you know, I consider her the foremost expert on near-death that there is. You should interview her sometime, PMH Atwater. She's oh, I actually have her scheduled. Oh, I, she's, she, I, I talked to her the other day. She's like 83, right? I love because she is a, a dear an important and incredibly Wait, intelligent soul. Well, that's so crazy because I'm for come on one second. Let me check my schedule here. Let's see. Yep, I have her on October seventh at well, eleven a.m. <laughs> she, you're in for a treat. You are in for a treat because she's amazing. And what's been so fascinating is, you know, there's always an undercurrent and underlying similarity through everything, but then the, the uniqueness of each of the experiences. So that's why I say when that guy saw a white tunnel and a blue tunnel, rock on. I believe it. Do you know? Uh -huh. um, when I say I saw no tunnel, rock on. That's what happened to right. me. Um, you know, my friend Peter, he saw somebody completely different during his mm -hmm. experience. And, you know, I think we see what's necessary and what's relevant to us. You know, I always make the joke, you know, I was driving one second and then I woke up freshly dead. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, landing in this space and I'm totally, um, new in that moment yet, not at all, um, to the whole experience of being dead. And so, these beings that came forward, they took on a human appearance for me. And I don't know if that was to make it easier for me to make me feel more comfortable to help me remember, but that's what happened. And then there are people who have had, you know, if they're religious, they've, they've seen the, you know, the, the figure or icon that's significant to their religion um, appear. It happens, you know, in a, in a million different ways and all of them are right. That's so cool. Um, another person I had interviewed, and he's actually, well, he lives in the mountains now of North Carolina, oddly enough. Um, and, uh, he was a, uh, a Protestant pastor for like 40 years and he had an, an epileptic seizure. And during the seizure, you know, he, he had like the same experience that I had when I had a seizure too, which lasted about 20 minutes where, I was just sort of like in this weird vortex of, of color and sound. Mm -hmm. The space between. But, but I was completely at peace. I was just sort of hanging out going, wow, this is pretty groovy. <laughs> you know? And, and then, you know, I, I, in, the, in the background, I heard somebody shouting my name and I came back. Mm -hmm. um, but, it was, but, but it was weird because I absolutely believe I was no longer in my body or in my oh, brain during not. that period. And, and the same thing happened to him. And it, like, it made him like sort of walk away from his religion and everything and kind of just mm -hmm. go out and live on the mountains on his own and find out what he really was going to you know, believe mm -hmm. and felt and saw it. Well, I think it's important for anyone who's listening, especially someone who's lost somebody and, um, you know, they might have perceived their death to have been, you know, horrific or tragic or, or whatever. I think it's really important um, what you just said there. I have, you know, been doing this for actively for 30 years um, where 
you know, I've experienced so many deaths with people. And one thing that is so interesting is that at times when the body is going through great distress during the death process, oftentimes I have watched the essence of the soul lift out of the body as the body was in distress and then go back in when it was in a state of peace. We are in complete control of how we experience that. And so if your body was going through that seizure and it was, you know, um, just too much, you lift it out of your body while the body went through the experience and then go back into it. Do you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's something that we're able to do. We're able to lift and lower. And right. so that brings great comfort to a lot of people when they realize that, um, especially if they were there when somebody's going through the death rattles and it just sounds so awful and they, they look like they're struggling so much. And, you know, oftentimes I'm able to say to them, Hey, they're, they're not even in there at the moment. They're completely disconnected. I was out of my body before my neck was even broken. And so, um, you know, I think it's important for people to remember we die the way we choose to. And that experience is, and the experience that we gather at the time of death are exactly what we needed and wanted in that moment. And oftentimes we're thoughtful enough to create an experience for those around us that will help them grow exponentially. And this is often when we get into the discussion about, well, well what about suicide? Well, we have come to know that there are two types. There's the soul plan suicide where it was on the cards all along before the soul even was incarnate. Uh -huh. And then there's the suicide by overwhelm where in that split second, somebody did something and made that decision, which still ultimately is part of the plan. But what I have seen with those individuals who became overwhelmed and did it in that moment, mm -hmm. the second they're out of the body, there's that, Oh yeah. And now they're not beating themselves up or going, they're like, okay, I can't wait to go back in get myself in another set of circumstances where I have to confront that exact same feeling and choose differently. And then there are those who are coming in knowing that, Hey, I'm going to live till I'm 22. And then I'm going to, um, I'm going to take my own life for the benefit of those around me because it's going to change the way they view their own actions or the actions of the people around them. Or maybe the, the person who's been very judgmental about someone who's committed suicide saying that it's a travesty and it's, you know, it's against the church and they're going to burn mm -hmm. in hell until it's their own child. And so there are a multitude of ways to experience those lessons. And so it's really, really important to know that at all times and in all ways, we ultimately decide how, how we come, how we go and how we go. It's pretty yeah. cool, isn't it? <laughs> it? It is. It is. I mean, I had a friend. This was a long time ago. I think I was like maybe 20 years old. And, and I worked with this guy and, and um, he became a friend of mine. I used to go over his house and jam with him. And, and I didn't have much money, so he would feed me and, and stuff like that. And then, <laughs> he, moved, then he, he moved away to... Biloxi, Mississippi, or somewhere like that, and uh, he ended up killing his. He 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 shot his girlfriend and then shot himself. And after that, like I was so shocked by that. You know, I was like, "How could he do this?" And I was so upset with him, with him in that situation. And. But but now I don't necessarily see it in that shocking way. That, you know, now I'm 50, mm -hmm. and it's kind of like, well, it happened. 
exactly. You know, and you, at the time you were placing your own parameters and judgments about his life or the course of his life and death or, or the sole contract or agreement that the two of them had made, you know, and you forget about all that stuff and you're like, how could you do this? It's so selfish. Da, 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 you know, and then you realize, hang on a second. Sometimes for, for those that are coming in, it's, it's the ultimate act of selflessness mm -hmm. that they are, they are doing that because it creates an opportunity for growth and understanding. And for a soul who knows it's eternal, the idea of coming in and ending a life short, you know, in a short space of time um, is, it's no big deal. And it's so funny how, you know, you could have someone who eats themselves or drinks themselves or smokes themselves to death. And we don't look at that as, as a slow form of suicide. We look at their death when it ultimately happens. Oh God, you know, Oh my God, he died of a heart attack or he had this or this or that. When, when they were completely in control of what they were doing to their bodies. Um, yet someone who makes that decision in a split second and, you know, all of a sudden they're the bad guy and they're totally selfish and this, and it's so funny what we, place on death in order to make ourselves feel better. Hmm. Yeah. Like with, with that, there was like, there was two things that I, I experienced. One was I was mad at him for killing somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing too was he had tried to contact me like a week before and uh, at my job and like my boss had sent him away. So I kind of felt like this weird, um, like survival, survivor guilt kind of thing. Well, I'll tell you this, the same as I tell anybody who's lost somebody to suicide, there is absolutely nothing you would have said or done that could have changed those circumstances. If that was a soul plan suicide, he was going, period. End of story. If it was a case that it was, um, you know, a, a suicide by overwhelm, you still couldn't mm -hmm. have done anything to interve intervene with that. It was going to play out that way because ultimately on their own soul's plan, they go that way in order to be able to come back in and not go that way. It's part of their growth. You don't get to judge whether that's relevant or not just because it's something that's painful for you. That makes so you know, much it's, sense. It's like people who, who judge plans that you've made without having all of the, all of the background story, you know? Yeah. And um, like, you, you just don't do that. Um, but we do it all the time because we, we think do. we know everything and we don't know everything. And rarely do we know when we make a judgment about somebody, rarely do we have the whole picture, if ever. I never have the whole picture. That's why I try to, that's one, <laughs> one of the things too, is I, I realize that I only know a little bit about what's actually going on. <laughs> you know? Hey, I tell you, when you're interviewing PMH, ask her to talk to you. She did this beautiful series once where a, a bunch of the people that she had interviewed um, had drawn pictures of what their near death experience looked like. Uh -huh. And there was one that always stuck with me that this kid had drawn and it was this little box and out of this box shone this huge light that took up the rest of the piece of paper. And what the child was trying to describe was what they thought to be true was in that little box and what actually happened and what they experienced in their death was that light that was, you know, colored in on the rest of the paper. And it was just profound. And so get her to talk to you about that because she's, she has some extraordinary um, anecdotes on, um, on those experiences. And so it is, it's just, it's just small. And I think, 
you know, I love to tell the story again. I write about this in, in one of my books and when my father was dying and he had Alzheimer's and people were like, Oh my God, it's so awful. And I just, I didn't see it that way. You know, my father was an extremely disciplined man. He'd never drank, smoked, swore. He was a pillar of the community and, and it takes a lot of discipline to be that guy. And so at the end of his life, while he was still gathering tools, he got the opportunity to go through this Alzheimer's experience and he was cussing and blinding and doing all this stuff that in his, in his conscious life, he never in a million years would do yet. He got to experience that. And one day after he, he'd had a really, really tough day, he had sundowners um, syndrome, you know, where he gets so agitated and he hadn't mm -hmm. been able to speak for months at this stage. Like all he could do was just mumble. And my mother and I were in the nursing home with him and he had a particularly bad day and he was shuffling around and you know, he'd shuffle to the bathroom, shuffle out to the hallway, shuffle back, but he would never lay down in the bed because he thought if he did, he was going to die. And this is interesting, a man who's dedicated his entire life to preaching the word of God and he can't lay down because he thinks he's going to die and it's something to be terrified of. And I'm like, what the heck was all, were all those years for? If they can't bring <laughs> you comfort at the end, you know, my God. And so I'm watching him and all of a sudden he, he comes out of the bathroom and he goes and he gets into the bed and he lies down. And I'm, my mom and I are looking at each other and he starts laughing. And he's reaching up and my mom's like, oh my gosh, is this it? And I was like, no, because when someone is getting ready to transition to me, because I can see that auric field or the light around people, it looks like fireworks. So it's not like a light switch that's dimming down and, you know, the light snuffs out. It's quite the opposite. There's a whole lot of activity going on because as that soul is expanding outside of the body, it, it looks like a fireworks display. And so he didn't have that around him. So I knew he was just having an experience in that moment. Mm -hmm. And now he has not been able to speak for months. And suddenly he's looking up at the ceiling and he's going, I can see it. I can see it just as clear as day. And we were like, Oh my Lord, what is he seeing? And he goes, the land beyond the river, which subsequently I ended up naming a book after that. Cause I thought it was so beautiful. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, talk to me, dad. You know, what do you see? And he said, mama, mama's there. And she looks so young. And we were like, oh, that's nice. You know? And the next thing he's like a deer in headlights. And he's like, oh my gosh, daddy's there. Now for my father, this was a very big deal. Uh -huh. As far as his criteria for what it meant as a Christian minister to get to heaven, my, my grandfather, his father had not met that criteria and it always weighed very heavily on my dad's heart because, you know, you know, I don't know if he was a drinker, gambler, whatever it was he uh -huh. did that my dad deemed not worthy of making it into heaven. He's suddenly seeing his own father and he turns to my mom and he goes, Helen, I've had it wrong all along. You can't mess this thing up. <laughs> everybody's welcome here. And I thought, my God, that is the most profound thing I've ever heard. Everybody's welcome here. Wow. And then he didn't speak, but he shared that moment with us. And it, it just, it has changed so many people. So many of my readers who've read that just went, I'll, I'll never be the same. I'll never see it the same way. That's so beautiful. After that, it was so incredible. Wow. And I just thought, how fabulous is that? 
everybody is welcome. When, when my dad was passing away, like he was in and out for, I don't know, like two weeks. And we put a baby monitor in the room so we could hear him. And whenever he was awake, he would be sitting there. We hear him on a baby monitor having conversations with other people that had passed away. Mm-hmm. Like they were really there. They were really there. And, and it was like they were coming to help him, you know, like, like nudge him along. Like, come on, come on. Stop being, so, stop being so stubborn and get going here. Right. Exactly. And, you know, this is so funny too, because I've dealt with so many people who were just, you know, talk about survivor's guilt or whatever they, um, you know, where they held vigil next to the bed of a dying loved one and they'd been there day in, day out, 24 seven. And then they went downstairs to get a cup of coffee and the person dies and they were so heartbroken. And I'm going, you don't understand. Sometimes we can surround people with our grief and we can, we can hijack their passing because it makes us feel better. And for some people, the ideal scenario is to be surrounded by everyone who loves them. For other people who have dedicated themselves to people all of their lives, mm -hmm. the passing becomes an intimate and very personal experience. And so if you were in that room, they wanted you there. Right. If you weren't in that room, it's not because they didn't want you around, but it's because it's something they needed to experience on their own. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. And you can get very selfish because, when it comes to death. You know, we want we I want to be there. <laughs> yeah, like like when my mom was dying too. You know, like it was like as long as we were in a room, she, she wasn't going to let go. Mm -hmm, so exactly. so 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 we we were like, okay, we're in tricker. We're going to leave the room for a half hour and come back. Mm -hmm. And then and it worked because by the time we came back, she was almost gone and. Well, listen, inevitably, whoever needs to be there, it was a sitter who was there when my father died. And what was so interesting was he called my mom early, early in the morning. And he said, Miss Hensley, I want you to know that Coach Hensley is, is, is gone. And he said, uh, I, I'm never going to be the same again. And she said, what happened? And she said, you know, I never knew him as a young man. I've only you know known him since I've been in here sitting with him. And she said, he said, all of a sudden, his face became that of a young man. And the whole room began to glow. And can you imagine how wonderful it was for my mom to hear that? Because my father had been, you know, making my mom not feel welcome to be there for the last few weeks because it was, he loved her. They were married for over 70 years. The only way he could let go was with her not there. Mm -hmm. And so this sitter was there and he got to watch that experience. Now, in turn, a year later, my mom happened to be with me at the time of, the passing of a dear friend's father and she got to see it all. She saw the room fill up with light. She saw the beings. It just blew her out of the water. So we're always meant to see it when we're meant to see it. And so I think it's really important for people to remember, you know, don't stress yourself out over the fact that you, you know, you didn't get home in time or you just missed it. There's no way you could have missed it if you were meant to be there. And chances are, if you weren't there, it would have made it so much more difficult for them to leave. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing for people to remember. Wow. Um, how about like, like uh, do you think it's possible for, oh, and I think you, I already know the answer to this because you kind of answered it already, but is, is it possible for us to exist in more than one life at a time? Absolutely. 
So that's why like, 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 like we could experience a ghost, but maybe that person's also living another life somewhere else. Too. Absolutely. Yep. I've seen, I've seen it too many times and know it to be true. I, I think that's a tough one too. I think, because we're so used to looking at things in a linear way. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't match linear thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard to break out of that habit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're concurrent lifetimes. Interesting. But we tend to compartmentalize things in the way that's easier. And sometimes that's a good thing, you know, because it makes it easier to have the experience here. It's kind of like, you know what, Gary, if you and I sat down and we agreed to play a game of Monopoly, Mm-hmm. we suspend at the moment we open that board, we suspend all reality because you know, you and I both know that $500 bills aren't pink and you know that I don't own a whole bunch of hotels on park Avenue, uh-huh. but we suspend the reality that we know in order to immerse ourselves in the fun of that game. And you know that when, you know, if I hit the go to jail thing, I'm not really going to jail, but we put my little dog or your shoe in the, in jail and we sit there until we pass go and, you know, we decide to play by those rules. And the very same thing applies here. You know, we suspend what we know to be true in order to immerse ourselves fully in this experience. And if people could remember that things become a whole lot less painful. Is there a reason why we don't remember Yeah. Imagine if you were spending your time 24 seven pining away for where you came from. I described when I wrote about my death experience, I described the place that I went as a place so beautiful that it hurts to remember. And that's true. And sometimes that amnesia is a very, very welcome blessing because if, if you're coming here to try and accomplish something, if you're distracted by trying always to get somewhere else. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody who they don't have the the patience to sit and listen to you and what you have to say because they're trying to come in on top of you? You know, it's, we do it a lot now in the internet days because of the delay. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like we're talking over top of each other. Um, But you know, where someone's not fully present with you and they're trying to get somewhere else or they're trying to say what they need to say so that they don't even actually hear what you just said. It's not a very nice feeling, you know? And so there are oftentimes a lot of people who are so hijacked and immersed by their spirituality that they're forgetting to live. They're constantly trying to, to be this perfectly enlightened being. And I'm going, you already are that which you seek sunshine, let it go and go live, go mess up go hurt, go make some mistakes, go fall in love, go get fat, go lose some weight, go do, you know, <laughs> go do all of it. So even the dirty parts it. of us are part of even, uh, perfection. Even the most difficult parts. Um, I wrote a story in Understanding is the New Healing that is very, very difficult for some people. And I've gotten some interesting feedback on it, but it couldn't be excluded from these stories because I think to exclude the ones that are difficult um, serves absolutely no purpose. You don't just put all the feel good stories in, you put all the stories in because that's reality. And this one's a hard one for people. And it was this fella that I was working with in the UK and his name was Edmund. And he came to me for a session and he was just, he looked like he had, you know, those basset hound eyes. He was just woeful. He was so, so sad. And he was very upfront with me that he had just spent the last, um, I think it was 30 years. It was either 20 or 30 years in prison. 
and he'd gone through all sorts of rehabilitation in there, but the urges were just so overwhelming and he wanted desperately to get to the bottom of it. He knew his behavior was wrong, yet somehow he could not control the way that he felt. And in that moment, I suddenly realized that he was a convicted pedophile. And so the mother in me at that moment, I was like, my God, do I strangle him here? Do I listen? What do I do? And all I could hear was every, every verse I've ever known about judge not lest you be judged and mm-hmm. um, walking in their shoes and, and, and exercising compassion. And I mean, I had to do everything. I pulled out every trick in the book to stay present with him. But I felt like I, I owed that to that experience. I owed that to him. I owed it to myself. And so what happens with me when I'm in a session is it's like a mind movie will unfold. It's like I'm seeing in present time what's actually happening. And it can be in this lifetime or it can be in a different lifetime. And all of a sudden I'm thrown back and I'm in the Middle East and um, it's, you know, several thousand years ago. And I'm looking at this, it looked like a cattle pen and it was thronged with people. Mothers, fathers, children, just wailing. People are, they're speaking in a language that was different to the language of their captors. And I'm looking around going, oh God, okay, he's going to be in that group. He's going to be in this group of, of, of people who are imprisoned. But I was wrong. I looked over and wasn't he one of the um, guards or, you know, the, the soldiers who were there hurling these people into these cattle pens and they were doing the most atrocious things to them. And so I'm watching and I'm seeing, you know, that they're, they're egging each other on They're They're encouraging one another to rape the women, rape the children. It was absolutely, absolutely 100% acceptable because in, in this world, in this place that they were in history, the people that they had um, captured were, were subhuman to them. And so it was absolutely normal to rape a child there. And I'm looking at this and, oh, you want to talk about, I was like, oh my gosh. And every judgment I ever had went out the window. Now, am I, am I condoning pedophilia? No, I'm trying to share a story where someone who's gone through an experience has something else at hand. And so what was happening, these urges that this guy was feeling, they were coming from a cellular memory of a time when it actually was okay for the person that he was to do what he was doing in current time. He was, he was having these urges and acting on a feeling that was coming from somewhere else. And once we were able to identify that, those urges stopped and he was able to integrate into society again. And, you know, and, you know, I don't know how you live what we'd call a normal life after an experience like that, but Mm. he's living a life, you know, and he's not doing that anymore. And that is healing for him. And so to place judgment aside of what I think, you know, this first thing you hear, somebody hurts a child, no way, forget it, kill them, murder them. That's it. They don't deserve to live. Yeah. But if you step back for a moment and go, every life has a purpose, every life has a meaning, every experience has a meaning, you sit back and you go, oh my gosh, this is incredible. It changed me on that day. It really, really did. So this was like his opportunity to correct himself. Exactly. To face the same feelings and choose differently. And so it's like somebody who could say, you know, um, uh, you know, a murderer, all murderers should be murdered, you know, or, or 
um, you know, well, I'd never murder anybody. Really? You know, if somebody had broken into my house and was attacking one of my girls, I'd kill them in a skinny minute, you know? Um, I'd try to find another way to do it, but if I had to, I'd, you know, I'd, I'm a chiropractor, man. I'd do a super adjustment and that'd be it. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, you know, never say never because under any set of circumstances, you know, if somebody said, you know, I'd never want my daughter to be raped. Well, you know what? I'm my parents' daughter and I was raped and it's one of the most profound and life-changing things that's ever happened to me. And I've helped thousands of people because of that experience. Mm. you know? And so we get so compartmentalized when we think, you know, we see good, bad, right, wrong, light, dark, and realizing that all of the threads are necessary in the tapestry of life. All of them. You can't know light without darkness. You can't. Ah. And um, ah, on a sheet that Michelle gave me, it says that you're writing a book on preteen gender identity. Yeah. And, yeah, and, so and, and, and does that, does gender identity sometimes, is that affected by possibly like past life experience you think? I'm sure. Yeah. It's part of, it's, it's, it's just part of the experience. It's another way to experience life. And then, you know, we get it into our heads that this way is right or wrong or, or they might, they're sick or they might need counseling or they're this or they're that. Look, it's just another way to live, do you know? And, um, I wrote this book because there's zero children's literature that these kids, you know, the LGBTQ kids can see themselves in. And so, you know, nine to 12 is a very vulnerable stage. It's, you know, especially when they're finding out who they are and they're starting to enter into their sexuality. And there's a lot of confusion around that. And particularly, you know, ones who are beginning to realize, wait a second, you know, all those boys over there like girls. Well, I don't. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought it was really important that there was uh, a series of books written for these kids and not just for them to see themselves, but for those who aren't like them to be able to see them with compassion and to know that it's not their job to make them feel comfortable with who they are. Do you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, we, we tend to toss around this word acceptance. You know, I didn't write this book so that a straight child would accept a child who isn't straight because that child's job is not to create acceptance. They just need to be. And what I, what I wanted to teach those children was to be able to exercise compassion, to understand that this world isn't black and white. And so it's called hue and the manatee, you know, love little play on the words humanity. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about a little boy who is, uh, he likes to paint his nails pink. He's a great swimmer and he's loved by the kids on his swim team, but he, you know, he happens to um, like show tunes and paint his nails pink. And so the bullies of the school find him down by the water um, and his, he's his pink toenails out in the water and they're just horrendous to him. And up comes this magical manatee who takes all three kids underwater in these bubbles. And the, the children who are the bullies rather than, you know, um, being chastised or criticized, they're taught and they're taught through these aquatic sea creatures where the, the lines between male, female, the gender identity, is blurred you know you've got the race bitch which is is born male and then turns female you've got the seahorse who's you know the male seahorse is the daddy it has mm -hmm. the babies 
Um, you know, and there are these sea spiders who are, are both, you know, they can be male or female or they, and they can change at will. Um, you know, and above, above ground, you've got the peacock where the, the female is kind of dingy looking and the male is, is walking around with the big turquoise, you know, <laughs> others and so this manatee is teaching and educating these children through these creatures um that life isn't always black and white you know it's not just you know that some kids are raised by their grandparents some are raised by a mom and a father some are raised by just the mother some are are are, are raised in a in a home you know um and it strives to bring this understanding to children that they don't compartmentalize and box down the relevance or importance or significance of a life mm -hmm. based on what they might be experiencing in their own home. Um, you know, that there are so many different ways to be out there and it's just, it's trying to teach them how to understand that, how to open a dialogue. It's a book that, you know, parents can read, you know, at, or go through with their kids after they've read it and talk about this stuff. That's great. And, and to change these patterns. So yeah, that's, that's my latest project. And, um, my nephew, Max, um, he did all the illustrations. And so mm -hmm. I'm just waiting on the cover of the book and it's ready to rock. That's so I'll, cool. I'll have that out this year. Yeah. Because people do, they look at it as black and white, but you forget like, like, the, like overlooking the obvious, like men have nipples. Why? <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? Right. I'm with you. <laughs> it's so obvious that there's not like this huge difference. Right. I mean, and they don't serve any purpose to a man. Mm hmm Well, to some men they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just it's strange. I I think that's great though. And Thank um you forward to that coming out yeah it'll be it'll be it'll be fun it'll be something very different yeah um, you know it's, it's it's a step outside of the world of metaphysics but it actually isn't you know it's just taking it from a different angle it is um, it is anytime, anytime that we can teach compassion and love and and understanding of one another then we're you know we're delving into that world of, of moving just out of kind of the corporeal experience of of being human and, and moving into that more, you know, mind, body, spirit, emotional aspect of who we really are. Awesome. Um, so I'm kind of starting to run out of time. Uh, definitely like, like you're, you're a freaking amazing guest. Amazing host. I mean, this, this, this was just fantastic. This is probably going to end up being one of my best episodes. Oh, well, you know great. what? And, and I, I'm really grateful because, you know, people like me can't do what we do without people like you. And oh, for thanks. you to have the courage and the stamina to create this kind of platform is, is just as important. You know, a puzzle is not complete unless all of the pieces are, are, are there. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I thank you very, very much for what you're doing. It's, it's equally as important. Thank you. And it's kind of cool too. I don't know if this was coincidence or what, but I came home today and there was a box on my porch and I'm like, what is this box doing here with my name on it? And I opened it up and it was from, um, I don't know if you know him. His name is Mark Ireland. And he, <laughs> do you know him? I'm <laughs> just laughing at the Ireland. 
Oh, <laughs> well, he, he, he wrote a book on the same topic because he had his son die and, and it's on the same topic. And I'm like, and then I have you today, we're talking about this topic. And then you mentioned another guest that I have on this topic. It's Absolutely. Just, well, that, that's the flow. That's the synergy of life. And, you know, I live that way every day. It was funny, you know, um, I mentioned earlier, you know, I went out to Los Angeles in March and I got COVID and what was supposed to be a three week trip turned into a six month trip because mm-hmm. by the time I was well enough to come home, my girls only had a couple of weeks left in school um, and they're in performing arts school in Dublin. And um, we usually spend our summers in LA and then go to grandma's in Virginia. And so I said, look, if I come home, we're staying home for the summer. And they were like, don't come home. And um, you know, they, they were dying to get over to LA. And so, you know, they came over and my friend Angelica stone, who um, she's an amazing person and she works with this bioresonance technology. And she'd kind of been there through thick and thin with me through the process and we we deconstructed the the disease together and really broke it down so that people could understand what was actually happening you know and and suddenly it wasn't so scary anymore and so she had the opportunity to travel with us because we went um she had turned 50 my girls had turned 16 and 18 and um i'd always wanted to do route 66 and drive from the west coast to the east coast and that's Uh what we did and she just laughed she just turned around she goes this is incredible she said like every time you turn around there is some synchronous event taking place or you, it, she, it's, she goes, you couldn't make it up. And only if somebody witnessed it, would they actually believe it? Cause people think I make stuff up. I don't have to make anything up. But what happens is I live with this absolute expectation that the next thing is going to unfold exactly as it is supposed to. And the reason it's going to do that is because I have set my intention as to what that's going to be. And, you know, it's incredible. So when I hear about, you know, Mark Ireland and then PMA Chatwater and all those synchronicities, I'm just going, you know, that's your higher self smiling at you going, you are in exactly the right place at the right time, buddy. You listened. Yeah. It's so strange too. Because when I was reading, like looking into the Mark Ireland book, you know, I didn't realize that, but his father was somebody that I used to watch on TV. His father was a, a psychic who would like bandage up his, his face and, and wear blindfolds and, and be able to read stuff. And I remember like oh, watching wow. that when I was like eight or nine years old and be like, wow, that's pretty cool. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so strange. Yeah. Keep following those feelings. And, uh, you know, that's, it's a wonderful way to live because I, I literally live with the expectation that awesomeness is always waiting around the corner and and remember awesomeness is whatever it is that i need to learn not necessarily what always feels good Mm. but to me an awesome experience is one where i'm growing you know because as long as i'm here i'm still learning me too (laughs) i think i still have a lot to learn yet (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for spending your time with me and i I'm, i'm delighted that you know it's almost 2 a.m. over here. I'm glad I'm a night owl. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I think it's about nine here. Yep. I got to eat dinner, go to bed. <laughs> Do that. All righty. Awesome. Thanks for being on. And uh, just let me know if you ever want to come back. I'd love to have you back on because I feel like Anytime. I just kind of skimmed the surface of all these topics. Anytime. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a great night.
Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle. Which I would be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. And Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everything imaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You know, yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.